0: It was January 1925, and the tiny town of Nome, Alaska, was in great peril. A diphtheria outbreak was infecting the residents, particularly the children. This lethal respiratory disease was leaving residents coughing and wheezing for air, and every day brought word of new cases in the town. There was a single doctor in this town of 1,400 people, and he ordered a quarantine to slow the spread of the disease, but he knew that this wasn't a cure. What the citizens of Nome desperately needed was a serum that could counteract this deadly disease. There was plenty of this medicine in Anchorage, but the problem was how to get it to Nome, it was winter, and the sea ice was so thick that you couldn't get boats to Nome. The planes of that era were open air cockpits, which prevented their use during the brutal realities of the Alaska winter. And the closest train station was 700 miles away. There was only one way you can transport anything to Nome this time of year dog sled. A plan was created, and the best dog sledders and their teams were called to join in the effort, and on the evening of January 27th, this serum baton race, we might call it, began and would continue through the efforts of 20 teams around the clock for the next five and a half days before finally reaching Nome. It wasn't easy. Nighttime temperatures were brutal, with air temperatures as cold as 60 below zero and wind chills as as cold as 85 below. Many of the mushers reached their checkpoints with severe hypothermia and frostbite from the bitter conditions. Four dogs died as they labored to pull this vital package closer to Nome. One team, intending to take a shortcut, sledded across a frozen bay, during which 80-mile-per-hour winds created waves that almost broke the ice within that bay, which would have left them stranded out at sea. The final team, led by a famous dog named Balto, strained their way through through blizzard-like conditions, until finally reaching Nome at 5.30 a.m. on February 2nd. And in that moment, all of their labors, straining, and suffering was worth it when the medicine was used to cure the sick and stop the disease in its tracks. Salvation was realized for the people of Nome that day thanks to the relentless efforts of those who had raced the cure to them. What a noble mission. What a worthy goal to achieve. And as we read their story, we could all say that their risk and their labor and their struggle, it was worth it to achieve the prize. Well, as Christians, we too are in a race with a goal of infinitely greater value. In Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, this goal and prize and the effort to strive for it has been front and center. Let's just spend a few minutes here to maybe summarize what has happened in the first three chapters leading up to the passage we'll look at this morning. In this introduction to his letter, Paul reminds them that they, as they have trusted in the gospel for salvation, God has began a good work in them a work that he will carry along until the day of Christ Jesus. By the power of the gospel, the hearts of the Philippians has been transformed, and the race has begun. And the goal is set, seeing Christ face to face. Paul then shared with the Philippians his current status, where we see an example of joyful labor in the midst of great trials. Paul reminded the Philippians that this living with persecution was a privilege that both he and they were afforded because they knew Christ, and he urged them to continue to be faithful. He was confident that all of his efforts, even through struggle, would turn out for God's glory even if it meant seeing Jesus in death. And along the way, Paul has noted to them examples of faithfulness that they could follow, most importantly, Jesus, and the mindset that he had as he came to earth to suffer in our place, but also in the persons of Timothy and Epaphroditus. In this race, some have questioned the value that Paul set on the ultimate prize. They saw more value in their earthly accomplishments and a system in a system which Paul had excelled in. But Paul didn't share their value assessment. He knew his earthly credentials were worse than garbage compared to knowing Christ. So as we now come to Philippians chapter three, verses 12 through 21, we will see Paul talk about his life for Christ as a race. And as he considers that race, we will see three broader points shine through. First, we are to run the race with the goal in view. Second, we are to imitate others who are running the race well. And third, we are running as citizens of heaven. We'll look first then at this running the race with the goal in view. Now Paul's desire for this end goal has been interwoven into much of what he has said leading up to chapter 3. But he clearly articulates this goal in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3 where he says, that I may know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection— and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's desire is to know Christ, and not merely intellectually, but to experience a relationship with him. As Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden in a close relationship, so Paul wanted a deep relationship, and fellowship with God. And Paul has already noted that such a relationship cannot be attained through earthly merit, but only through the sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross. So Paul, as he writes this letter, knows Christ through the transforming power of the gospel. And even as he knows Christ currently, he describes his present suffering as sharing in Christ's suffering. He's suffering alongside Christ, and thus that relationship deepens and grows. He even entertains the prospect of dying for his faith. So Paul knows Christ, and he's growing in that relationship as he walks with him. But knowing Christ on earth, even through suffering and death, isn't Paul's ultimate goal. He isn't running away from that opportunity to know Christ. Indeed, knowing Christ through suffering and deepening in that relationship is a way in which we run the race and strive for the goal. But he really desires to see Christ face to face. As he mentions in Philippians 1.23, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul desires to experience resurrection and to dwell with Christ for all of eternity. We just read in, chapter, or in verse 11 in this chapter that I may by any means possible attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul wants this life, the suffering with sin, the experiencing of suffering and weakness to end. He wants to see the Lord Whether in death or whether Christ's coming back, it doesn't really matter. He wants to be with Christ. But as Paul continues to consider this goal in verse 12, he acknowledges that he isn't at the finish line yet. And he needs to press on. In verse 12, he says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. As Paul considers this goal of eternity with Christ, he knows that he's a child of God, but he knows that he isn't what Christ is bringing him to be in eternity. He's still a work in progress. He hasn't reached the finish line. John Newton once said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But I still am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. I think Paul would have, res- would, would, would have resonated with this comment. Paul rejoiced to throw off his earthly accomplishments and to know Christ through the power of the gospel. He rejoiced in the way in which Christ was sanctifying him here on earth, even through his sufferings, but he longed for the day when he would be complete in Christ. Paul repeats this disclaimer in verse 13, and this time, as if to get their attention, as if to say, dear friend, this is important, he begins by saying, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. How does this thought hit you? Paul admits that he isn't there yet. And that admission is certainly one of humility, one to some extent of frustration, one of deep longing. As you consider your relationship with God this morning, how does the assessment that you aren't there yet, how does that hit you? Perhaps you're someone who doesn't see a relationship with God as something to be valued. Maybe it's because you find things in this world to be so satisfying that you just simply don't value knowing Christ the way Paul does. If that's you this morning, know that the things that you are satisfied on earth with now, they're not eternal. They will disappoint in time. Earthly treasures rot away. And these things that you're depending on now won't satisfy ultimately, and they won't help you as you stand before your judge someday. Christ alone is eternal. Knowing God is what you were created for, and that is where you will find your greatest joy. And it's your only hope before a holy judge. So I pray, if that's you this morning, I'm praying that God will open your eyes to this reality and that you will see your need for Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and and you you do not know Christ, but you know the struggles of sin and maybe you came here this morning looking for some answers. If that's you this morning, know that Christ died to pay the penalty for your sins and he rose three days later. And the same power that raised him from the dead can work in your heart to free you from sin and bring you into God's family. Seek his forgiveness. Knowing and living for Christ will not make all your suffering go away. We can see that clearly in the life of Paul. But living with Christ and with the hope of being free from suffering in eternity allows us to endure the trials of today by his grace with joy. But for those of us who are here and say, I know Christ is my savior. I'm one of his children. How does this assessment that you aren't there yet, how does that hit you? Maybe you're trusting in Christ, but recently maybe you've gotten a little too comfortable with this world and the sin struggles in your life. And maybe you just don't see a whole lot of urgency to run the race right now. Maybe you're trusting in your own routines. Or, and some of those routines might be really good things. But if you say, I'm just in a good place right now, no need to run. No need to strain and press on. If that's you, then I pray that the words that Paul speak to us today in Philippians will be a wake-up call for you and that you will indeed wake up and begin to run again. Perhaps this reminder that you're not there yet reminds you of sin struggles in your past, and it discourages you. Remember that God has begun a good work in you, and he will bring it to completion. So if you come this morning discouraged, I encourage you just to keep listening Paul has a lot to say to encourage you in the book of Philippians. And so let's keep looking to his words to encourage us and challenge us this morning. I hope for the majority of us, this assessment is met with a heart that knows it's true, yet is striving to know Christ better as we long for that final day when that goal is realized. So what does Paul do in light of this status in the race? He says here in Philippians that he, he presses on. Using terminology often used uh, to describe running a race, Paul describes how as a runner has not yet reached the finish line, he runs hard towards that goal. He labors to reach the finish line and to seize that prize. We're going to look at what that looks like in just a minute. But first of all, I think the question that we, we should consider is, can Paul... Or can we as Christians today really work hard in this life to contribute any effort toward reaching eternity with Christ? Is this something we can attain through human means? Has Paul come to know Christ through the intervening work of God in the gospel only now to humanly strive toward gaining eternity? Well, notice verse 12 how Paul says that he strives to make it his own because Christ Jesus has made him his own. Here we see this human striving towards spiritual realities that can only happen because of the work that God has done and is doing in our lives through his Spirit. Paul has made this same point earlier in this letter where he urged the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in your hearts both to give you the good desires and to give you the power and strength to live them out. So here Paul speaks of laboring to grow spiritually not, uh, and, and to reach the prize, not because he can achieve it on his own, but because Paul and his readers are joining with Christ in his labor to claim them as children of God. So as we consider sanctification in our own lives, is it done through human will and effort? No. But do we sit back and just wait for God to change us? No. He calls us to action, to work in our sanctification, and he promises that as we do, he will supply the desire and the power to grow and change us. So what does that laboring look like? Well, it gives us a glimpse of this in verses 13 and 14, where we read, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. As Paul seeks to press on, he tells us two orientations a runner can have. First, a runner can look backwards. Now, we're all probably familiar with the children's story of the tortoise and the hare. These two unlikely creatures coming together and choosing to compete with one another in a foot race. And as the race begins, the hare blazes off the starting line and is working his way through the course at intense speed. And at some point, he stops. He looks back, doesn't see the tortoise anywhere. (laughs) He is way ahead and he glories in his accomplishments and he says, you know what? I've done really well here. I can take a break, maybe get a little bit of a nap in and still wake up with plenty of time to finish this race before that tortoise does. And so in looking back and glorying in his accomplishments, he takes a nap. Now, the tortoise does not do this, but the tortoise could also be tempted to look back at the beginning of this race, how slow he started off the race, how little progress he's made along the trail and how far the rabbit is ahead of him. He could easily look back and deem that he is a complete failure. And maybe in the midst of that, doesn't see any reason running the rest of the race in light of his horrible efforts thus far. In the race towards Christ, Paul might have been tempted to look back at his accomplishments as well. I mean, he had started a number of churches throughout the Roman world, one of them being the church at Philippi, which was a great source of encouragement to him, even as of late. And Paul, now sitting in prison, hitting a bit of a rough patch, so to speak, Maybe it would have been easy for him to look back in glory and glory in what had happened in the past, and in so doing, lose his sight of the goal and prize. But not only are accomplishments a temptation to look back to, but also sometimes we can look back and see the sins in our past that might remind us of how unworthy we are to achieve the prize despite the redemption we have in christ we can look at these past sin struggles and ask why should i strive forward when i've been such a wretched mess well whether looking back at past successes or past failures paul states that this posture of looking backwards doesn't help us strain forward toward the prize and so instead of looking backwards Paul suggests that we we do the other orientation a runner can have, and that's looking forwards. This is the only successful orientation for a runner, to keep his eye on the finish line. Paul describes what the runner should be straining towards. In an interesting statement that might be a bit hard to understand, we read that we should strive toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's seek to unpack that just a little bit. Well, we should note that this goal and prize is something that we have been called to. As Christ Jesus has made us his own, he then calls us upward to a heavenly conclusion. Thus the goal is the end of all things. When the present age is over and Christ returns, and the prize that we obtain through Christ's sacrifice on the cross Is life with Christ without sin or limitation for all of eternity? And Paul's life strained toward this conclusion. He gave every ounce of his being to reach for that prize, it impacted everything he did in life. This was Paul's way of thinking. And as he notes in verse 15, it should be the way of thinking for the Philippians and anyone else who reads this letter. In verse 15, he says, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. In somewhat of a play on words, in verse 12, Paul states that he isn't mature yet, and then in verse, th- thir- or verse 15, he uses the exact same Greek word to say, if anyone is mature, they'll think this way. Whether this is an attack on his opponents or not, I think the point is pretty clear. Paul has talked a lot in this letter about having one mind, a mindset that is ultimately an imitation of Christ's. Paul here continues to encourage his readers to have this unified mindset. Christians who are honoring Christ with their lives will think this way. And if you don't think this way, then may God change your focus. In verse 16, we read, only let us hold true to what we have attained. I think this verse here is really just a conclusion of this this section here, where he reminds us that as we have attained Christ through through the, the gospel, Let us now live a life that demonstrates the new life we have in Christ. Or as Paul has said to the Colossians, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So brothers and sisters in Christ, in our race towards Christ, we have not reached the finish line yet. We are all maybe at different places along that trail. And the race... Maybe for you this morning as you come to church is a difficult one. Maybe one that you're finding really hard to run. Maybe there's sins that you're struggling with and you're finding it hard to find victory in those sins. Maybe you come this morning with grief through a loss of a loved one, a broken relationship, many other sources of grief in our life. And maybe that grief is making it hard for you to look to the prize. Maybe there's personal struggles that you find overwhelming, financial struggles, health struggles. Maybe there's trials in your life that really are causing doubts to rise up within you and you're wrestling with those doubts. Maybe as you just look to this world and the rebellion against God and the persecution maybe that you're facing in light of your faith, You're finding it hard to see any hope in this prize. If you come this morning and are finding it hard to run the race, take courage. Again, God who began a work in you, he will bring you to the finish line. In him you have power to overcome sin and the prize that you are running towards is a life free from sin and in Christ's presence. This world is full of grief, but there is joy in knowing Christ now. And there's fullness of joy in seeing him face to face. The challenges that we face in this world are formidable foes, but their weight count outweigh the glory that is awaiting us at the finish line. So don't give up. As we suffer in this world, we share in Christ's sufferings, and we grow closer to him now. We also demonstrate our deepest desires aren't in this earth, in this world, but they're in eternity with Christ. So God is at work in you, and he will give you the grace and the strength to endure. And so cry out to him, and then run with the strength that he provides. You might ask, okay, but what are like, some specifics? Like, what does striving toward this goal look like in my daily life? Well, that's a great question. And I would encourage you to ask each other that after the service today <laughs> in the lobby. Maybe ask that over lunch today. We could spend a series of sermons answering that question. But just a few points to that end. Our lives communicate value in our lives. So, if Jesus is what we value the most, then our lives and how we spend our life is going to demonstrate that. So, do you spend your life desiring to know Him better? Do you spend your life, your time, and your resources seeking to serve Christ, His church, and His kingdom throughout this world? Are there times in your life when you sacrifice pleasures because you value Christ more than those pleasures? And if someone were to look at your life and ask the question, what are they most satisfied in? Would they say Jesus is the answer to that question? Paul mentioned, Pastor Paul, not Apostle Paul, mentioned this in a sermon a few weeks ago. And I think it's worth repeating, particularly for those of us who are older in years, that there's, an attempt, there's a, a temptation to look back on past accomplishments and to retire from ministry, so to speak, seeking enjoyment in this life and in the process losing our focus on the prize. Let's not do that. Let's fix our eyes on the prize and not look back but strain forward with the strength that God supplies. And, and what that looks like is going to be different for each and every one of us, maybe. But let our lives now demonstrate a desire to know Christ fully. So we've seen here Paul describe the race that we are, to be, we are all to be running with a glorious prize of knowing Christ as our goal in, at the end. Paul now next calls us to imitate others who are running the race well. In verse 17, we read, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul has spent the majority of chapter 3 describing his life orientation towards Christ. And now he calls his brothers and sisters in Philippi to follow his example. Now, Paul is not setting himself up on a pedestal saying, look at me, I'm the one who really knows how to live for Christ here. No, we've seen in this letter that the ultimate example that we're all to follow is Christ himself. And Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. So in this race towards the finish line, and as, 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 as we run this race, we are all to look to Christ as we desire to see our lives conformed to His. But Paul notes that as you run, you, you are to look around and see others running alongside you who are running well and, and use their example to help you run harder for Christ. For the Philippians, Paul was certainly one example they could follow. Timothy and Epaphroditus were others that they knew that Paul had mentioned in this letter that were examples to them. And there was probably, no doubt, other individuals in the church at Philippi. We don't know their names, but no doubt they were examples worth following as well. As we strive to live for Christ we are to look for and notice others around us who are modeling Christ's likeness to us. Particularly maybe those who have walked the road of faith longer than we have. And this can help us keep our eyes fixed on the prize. So who are these examples? Who should we be looking to? Well, we can certainly look to the scriptures and see people like Paul who ran the race well and seek to follow his example. There are a number of Christian biographies that we could pick up and read and hear stories of brothers and sisters in Christ who have suffered and yet have lived faithfully in the midst of a variety of circumstances. Their stories are enthralling, but they're also instructive as we seek to be faithful to Christ in our own context. But those examples that we could follow, both Uh, characters people in in the scriptures and and also uh, biographies of people are they're all distant examples these are people we don't know personally and i think paul here in this in this in this verse in verse 17 is is calling them to look to people that they have relationships with people they've connected to who can be examples that they can run after and here we are blessed to have a church family to look to As we seek to run this race together in the context of this assembly, I am so thankful for the examples of faithful runners right here at Eden. There are people who have been faithful in the midst of suffering great loss. There are people who have or are currently enduring chronic medical conditions and looking to Christ all along the way. There are people who are just faithful at being salt and light at work and in their neighborhoods. People I need to try to be more like. And there are examples of people here at Eden who have been dedicated to ministry, some of them for decades, as you think about them serving as an elder or deacon or a Bible class teacher or serving on Wednesday nights during growth groups. There are people who are faithful in just being intentional in relationships between services as they interact with people and and ask good spiritual questions and seek to challenge others in their walk with Christ. We have examples of Christ's likeness right here in Eden, and we need to notice those examples and seek to follow their lead. Now, as we think about that, this is a message for all of us. But For just a second here, I want to make sure if kids were not listening before, listen now, okay? (laughs) You are trying to learn who God is and how to live for Christ and what that looks like. And here in our assembly, you have some great examples to follow. So I encourage you to look around. And if you see someone here in this church and you say, wow, that person really knows God and they're really trying to live for Jesus, I would encourage you to go and talk to that person. Ask them questions and try to learn from them. They would love to talk with you and they would love to help you live for Jesus too. And that's a message for our children and it's a message for every single one of us in the assembly today because I need that in my life. Okay? 39-year-olds can ask questions of people and learn how to follow Jesus better. And so let's seek to do that and seek to follow one another's examples. I don't mention people in this church as examples to elevate them to a pedestal. I don't want to encourage pride in living among any of us here like Paul, any Christ's likeness that we can exemplify to one another is because of Christ's work in us and his example that we're seeking to follow. And so as we look to one another, there's examples we can follow, but those people are also sinners who are struggling with sin and are working through uh, weakness and are seeking to live for Christ. way he has called them to and paul has called others to imitate him as he seeks to follow christ and as we seek to live for christ ourselves we too can seek to be an example to other people we need to be building relationships with each other and trying to disciple one another and help one another as we run this race together not because we've arrived spiritually None of us are that way. Paul says he's not there yet. Neither are we. But we can, seek fellow, we can seek to help fellow runners look to that prize. Paul calls his readers to look to others who are running the, the, the race well and to follow their example. But he briefly here mentions those who are not running well for that prize. And Paul calls his readers to watch out for such people, in an effort to not lose sight of this goal or prize. In verse 18 and 19, we read, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. So there are those around us who run as enemies of Christ. And this is nothing new. And Paul here just describes them. He describes them in sharp contrast with those who are running the race well. First, their end is their destruction. In an analogy of running the race, they are striving for a finish line that leads them straight to hell. They are living for an eternity that doesn't include life with Christ. But destruction instead. Paul says that their God is their belly and they their glory in their shame. And here is just a description of people living for the desires of the flesh. They'd rather have a life uh, lived for physical and, and sensual desires than for spiritual things. And so they're not fixed on eternal things, but rather the mundane, earthly things that they seek to satisfy themselves with. And those things that they desire and pursue, the things that they glory in and prize in this life, are the very things that they're going to be ashamed of someday as they stand before Christ. Ultimately, the the, the biggest contrast here is that their minds are fixed on earthly things. And again, Paul has talked a lot about mindsets in this letter. And as runners of Christ, we are called to have a mind like that of Christ. But these enemies of the cross of Christ have minds fixed on this world. Things that will perish just like they will. Now we see this description and we might say, well, that just describes the world around us. And that's true. But I think Paul is getting to something more here in this warning there wouldn't have been a lot of temptation for the Philippians to follow after the pagans living around them. The people that Paul are describing here are certainly pagan, but maybe not admittedly so. They very well may may have been people who claimed Christ, or were at least seeking to know God through some religious sort of way. And so they were someone that the Philippians might have been tempted to follow. Paul mentions them as a warning, and he does so with tears. As Christ looked to Jerusalem, seeing their attempted religiosity and yet their deadness spiritually, he wept over them. And so I think here, in a similar sense, Paul might be looking at these people who are running the race, but they're running in the wrong direction. And he weeps over them as he considers their soul and the destination to which they're headed. So as we think about this warning in our own lives, first of all, it's important for us to understand that there is a way of being religious that doesn't actually strive to know Christ or value eternal things. This fake identity in Christ demonstrates, is demonstrated by how people live. Their minds are set on earthly things. And there's many examples of that, of that around us. Maybe you know people in your family at work, in your neighborhood, who live this way. There are whole churches that operate in this way. But as we seek to run the race together and to fix our eyes on the prize, don't let us be fooled to think that there's any other way that we can run this race. This passage describes two different people, faithful runners And enemies of Christ. And as you consider your life, which description best fits how you live? Even as Christians, we can live a life that at times focuses too much on earthly things and on other desires than Christ. The warning should call us to evaluate our own lives and to consider what we value most in life. I think it's important for us to remember that Paul does not just blow these people off. While it's certainly easy to dismiss critics and those maybe run a different way than we do, may we have the heart of Paul that sees their racing towards destruction as a heart-wrenching thing. May we pray for them. May we seek to interact with them and to show them Christ. And by God's grace, may they be won over to love for Christ and a desire to see him face to face. So Paul has described for us how the race is won with our eyes fixed on the ultimate prize. And he's called his readers to look to examples of those who are running the race well, warning them to not follow after those who are enemies of Christ. Paul finally reminds them that they are, as they are running this race, they do so As citizens of heaven. In verse 20 and 21, we read But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. In contrast to those whose minds are fixed on earthly things, we as God's children are citizens, not ultimately of this world, but of heaven. There are those here among us in this assembly who live here in America, but their home country is not America. It's elsewhere. And some of them maybe desire to one day return to their homeland that is certainly I think the idea that Paul is getting at here we presently live here in this world and there are blessings that we enjoy and there's trials that we suffer through but this isn't our home we are citizens of heaven and we should and we should be longing to be there instead of here as citizens of heaven we are waiting for our ruler to return and to bring us home. And at the finish line, when we see Christ face to face, we will have the blessing of seeing these lowly bodies, full of weakness, riddled with sin, transformed into glorious bodies like Jesus. We know this because God, who has the power to raise Christ from the dead, who has the power to subject all things to himself, who had the power to transform your rebellious hearts into the hearts of faithful servants also has the power to make us like him when we see him as he is. And this is our prize. This is the goal we should all be straining towards. Looking back to the serum run of 1925, the mushers racing through the Alaskan wilderness during these deep winter nights had many things that might have stopped them from running this race. The northern lights were particularly spectacular during this time period. And maybe they were tempted to take a break and to look up and to see this beautiful this beautiful sight and certainly, it might have been a smart idea during some of those nights to stop and, and to build a shelter and to hunker down and wait for some more favorable wind, weather before the race continued on. No. Regardless of, the temp- of these temptations the mushers faced, they raced hard, endangering themselves, giving every ounce of their being to the task at hand. Why? Why? because they knew the goal, and the opportunity to save lives was a prize that they greatly valued. So they ran well, and even the stories of previous mushers on the race might have inspired greater bravery in the midst of their daunting task. As I mentioned in the beginning, the prize that we run for is of infinitely greater value than the one that was achieved on February 2nd of 1925. But the life that God has called us to in pursuit of that prize might feel just as overwhelming as the trail these mushers faced. But let's press on. God has called us to a heavenly conclusion. With the goal and prize in view, let us strain with all that we are to know Christ, to share in his sufferings now, and to look to share in in eternity with him when he returns. And let us remember that we don't run this race alone. Let us look to one another for examples. Let us help and encourage one another, especially on those days when the task seems too difficult to bear. Christ will bring us to the finish line. Let us trust him and seek to live our lives daily towards that prize let's pray lord as we look to this race that paul has described for us here lord we come to you confess that we aren't there yet and lord the task of running towards that prize of being conformed to your image is one that is overwhelming and difficult to even seek to understand in this life. But Lord, I pray that you give us desires to run this race hard. Lord, give us strength to endure trials and to run in such a way that this world knows and that you can see that, Lord, our, our first love, our desire is for you. Lord, do this work in each one of us as we seek to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.